You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Episode number 41 now of Understanding God's Righteousness and this episode is called The Divine Principles, Substance Projecting Head Covering. What are the terms of compliance for the gender-based head covering and uncovering rituals of the ecclesial age as required by the Lord Jesus Christ? What are the divine principles casting this ritual shadow? In that continuing context of understanding God's righteousness, we've been considering the gender roles of the enlightened community in the context of our divinely required service structure. We began by recognizing the four headships appointed by God, of God being the head of Christ, being the head of man, being the head of woman. We also looked at the pattern of dual service structure that is consistent even when divine dispensations change with a new priesthood and new laws. That dual priesthood structure is maintained so that brothers in the ecclesial age can be paralleled to the priests of the previous first kingdom age and sisters in the ecclesial age can be paralleled to the Levite support assignment of that previous age. We've also noted the parallel between the dual nature of the four rituals to be observed by the brothers and sisters of the ecclesial age to the foundations of the eight animal offerings during the previous first kingdom age, just as those clean, domesticated, earthly animals had four cloven hooves, so we have four ecclesial age rituals, each having a distinctive dual focus. So despite the fact that there are significant changes between the divinely appointed educational stage of the first kingdom age and the ecclesial age, there are consistent structure patterns that blend everything into a single whole, that comprehensive divine principle of God manifestation of multitudinous singularity, which is creationally testified through the effect of synergy. A further emphasis of this eight-component feature of these clean sacrificial animals would be God's dietary restrictions in order to maintain a standard of physical holiness during that first kingdom age. The The three restrictions for clean beasts that would not contradict God's standards of physical holiness um, that constituted the diet of the enlightened community included a parted hoof and specifically a cloven hoof. Um, This uh, next question is not rhetorical. I'm I'm not an expert on this issue. Uh, I actually failed my college freshman class on animal science although it was exclusively about the silliness of evolution, but I I still failed the course. So I'm wondering, is there actually any animal anywhere in creation with cloven 
hoof feet that does not have four legs. And therefore, four feet and four cloven hooves for a foundational um, um, status of eight components. Is there even one that has two legs, <laughs> other than pagan mythology? Or six or eight legs with cloven hoofs? I couldn't think of one or even Google one. But I don't pretend to be an expert on animal science. If there is not, shouldn't that divinely ordained physical holiness ritual, uh, considered against the frame of creation's testimony, offer a heavenly insight into why there are specifically four ecclesial age rituals that each have a distinct and sometimes doubly emphasized dual focus, providing an avenue for earthly expressions of heavenly truths. We also noted the, the error reversal concerning ritual observations within the enlightened community when comparing the previous kingdom dispensation uh, to the current ecclesial dispensation. The Jewish people obsessed over the physical performance of God's rituals, while very much ignoring the spiritual substance casting uh, those ritual shadow, that ritual shadow testimony. But in the ecclesial age, we have obsessed over the spiritual implications of our rituals while dismissing the significance of the physical applications of those four rituals. Both perspectives are incomplete. The Creator's plan is to blend earth and heaven. His plan is not unity based on respecting diversity. His plan is perfect harmony, what he calls peace. Unity is merely a temporary stage that has to eventually be eliminated to achieve harmony, uh, when there can be no diversity whatsoever. So then we began to review the physical performance and the spiritual principles casting the ritual shadows of the head covering ritual imposed by our Lord at the beginning of the ecclesial age. That dual emphasis in this ritual was doubled in first the separate performance requirements on the basis of gender and secondly the two applications for head coverings and uncoverings uh, being participating in a prayer and also miraculously prophesying. We generated 10 questions to be answered so that we may be able to properly execute the performance, the physical performance of the ritual demanded by Jesus Christ, but also use those shadows to properly define the spiritual truths casting those shadows. In the terms of God's creational testimony, if we get the shadows wrong, we are going to distort the substance casting those shadows. The shadow of a giraffe does not extend from a child. The shadow of a flower does not extend from an oak tree. Literally everything has to blend together perfectly. And that's a somewhat daunting challenge, but the reward is incredibly valuable.
being able to witness a greater and greater measure of the hidden glory of God in the perfect symmetry of all his testimony. That is worth any cost. So let's review those 10 questions again, and we'll begin to address them. So first was, what are the terms of our Heavenly Father's righteousness that are being testified by correctly performing this head covering and uncovering ritual? And what are what is the range of application for the performance of this ritual? And why are both prayer and prophesying included in that range of application? What's the commonality of these two applications of prayer and prophesying that both come under the requirement of respecting headships? And is it appropriate to limit the application of the head covering for, for sisters or uncovering for brethren during prayer to the ecclesial worship environment, as was the case with the silence ritual? Fifthly, what, what is the head that's being dishonored when inappropriately praying with a covered or uncovered head? Would that disrespect be one's own head or their divinely appointed head above them? Why is shaving the head of a sister equivalent to covering her head while praying or prophesying? And what are the glory identifications and their relationships in this ritual? And eighth, how does this head covering or head shaving requirement manifest itself in complementary fashion through those lengthening and shortening shadow testimonies of God throughout other divine ages? Is this ritual so insignificant it can be casually dismissed without consequence, without offending God and Christ, as is so frequently done currently in our community? Will there be no consequences? How do the sons of men paganize Christianity and even the enlightened community corrupt this divinely appointed ritual? Well, ad admittedly, we're not going to have the capacity to address each question independently of all other questions, but that that's the nature of harmony. Everything affects and has to blend with everything else. Nothing is entirely independent Simplicity is our enemy. If we want to understand our Creator and His invariable rightness, it's the naturally comfortable serpent testimony that's dependent on simplicity and instinctive thinking. That refusal to respect God's dietary restriction of a beast that chewed its cud before digesting it. But, but we will try to focus on each individual question. So first of all, uh, what are the terms of our Heavenly Father's righteousness that are being testified by correctly performing this head covering and uncovering ritual? The manner in which we can answer this question is to consider the justifications the apostle presents for observing this ritual correctly for each gender application. First, we have that headship's declaration that's the foundational heavenly principle for this ecclesial age ritual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, reviewing verses 2 through 5, 
Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. So, first Paul is inspired to declare the foundational heavenly principle from which the head covering and uncovering ritual extends. Therefore, if we disrespect the physical performance of this ritual imposed by Jesus Christ, we will be disrespecting the legitimacy of God's appointed headships. If we disrespect the shadow, we are disrespecting the substance casting that shadow. This is the third calling stage of the saints. Performance. We're all called to enlightenment, to know God's truths. If we respond to that call, we are then called to choose to commit ourselves to those truths. Over the commonly accepted serpent frame of reference to what is right. That's the second call, the call to commitment. The third call is to performance. It will make no difference whatsoever if we understand the truth and choose to be baptized if we do not then demonstrate those truths in our lives. Our rejection by Christ will be assured at that fourth and final calling, the calling that's not voluntary, like the three previous callings, we will be called to the judgment. It'll make no difference if we're dead or alive. Our attendance will be mandated. And then that performance stage will be examined over our entire life. We are repeatedly told that we will be judged according to our deeds and works. And even the most idle of words that we have spoken will be judged on the basis of that performance stage. Will Jesus want us for his eternal companions so that he might not have to be alone, as God stated with the creation of woman, that it's not good for man to be alone? So first and foremost, the foundational heavenly principle casting this head covering or uncovering ritual shadow is that four headship hierarchy that has to be respected We've also noted the greatest challenge to that respect, the serpent principle of equality and the serpent delusion that a personal competency somehow overrules the legitimacy of these divinely appointed headships. A gender competency cannot possibly dismiss a divine truth on any legitimate basis. Paul justifies this ritual performance for each gender assignment with further, further reasoning. And uh, further down in chapter 11, he says in verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power or authority or a covering 
on her head because of the angels. Paul offers a creational justification, part of that substance for the correct performed extension of this shadow ritual. First, he's inspired to express this in the terms of the intended glory, and then in the order of creation. This exact same reasoning is inspired to be offered as justification for the dual emphasis of the silence ritual. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, Paul writes, for a man in the, uh, sorry, <laughs> reading from 1 Timothy 2, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Paul uses that same creation order justification, that heavenly substance casting the earthly ritual shadow. Same one as the head covering justification. Now, this is a very significant observation and a double validation. One of the divine patterns we've noted in this series of classes is the two witness rule of God, that he requires two witnesses in a life and death trial. We have repeatedly observed how the same testimony of our creator is validated through both scripture and creation, both the written word of God and the spoken word of God. We've also paid attention to the divine expression rule of redundancy, how God is surgically redundant. That redundancy expression tool is a perfect example of how more is given to those who have, while those who have little, what little they have is taken from them. This is because redundant expressions are frequently dismissed as a poor form of communication by those with eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear, no matter whether they're part of the enlightened or the unenlightened communities. God uses redundancy in a very highly surgical manner that gives greater understanding to those who respect this two-witness policy. So that fact that God presents two of the four ecclesial age rituals as a demonstration of his creational procedures, purpose, and corresponding glory implications should not be ignored. This perfectly fits God's use of both the two-witness policy and his redundancy pattern that provides both emphasis and insight. Let's also recognize that this creational order and purpose was on that sixth day of creation and is therefore also a shadow projection of heavenly substance. The creation of Adam is a template for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The creation of Eve is a template for the bride of Jesus Christ, the saints, that will be his eternal companions so that he might not have to be alone. As the terms of the salvation of Jesus were quite different from the terms of salvation for the approaching two salvation events of the saints, Jesus had to be absolutely perfect. Thankfully, we do not have to be absolutely perfect 
we're offered grace, forgiveness, and imputed righteousness. But there are certainly limitations, and that's why there is a judgment, and why we are warned twice by Jesus that many are going to be called to that judgment, but only a few will be chosen from among those many called to the judgment. It's how he concludes two separate judgment parables. Therefore, when we see this creational template being offered as justification for both of the gender-based rituals of the ecclesial age, we really should pay close attention. Redundancy emphasizes significance in the divine communication pattern. That dual witness policy of God's is not to be ignored or even disrespected because disrespecting the earthly shadow also disrespects the heavenly substance casting that shadow. Do we really think that the bride of Christ should disrespect the legitimacy of Christ as our head? Do we really think it's appropriate to object to that headship on the basis of equality? or competency in relation to our Savior? So, in our pursuit for understanding the heavenly substance, casting this ritual shadow, let's notice how many times the word head is emphasized by Paul. Um, reading again, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2, just for this particular observation. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head for that is even all one as if she were shaven. The head is the creational design, uh, in the creational design of mankind, is the seat of authority, as well as responsibility. God, God did not assign four layers of hand ships, or feet ships, or heart ships, but four head ships. Therefore, we are licensed to engage God's harmony requirement by considering how God uses the head throughout all of his testimony, scripturally and creationally, in order to blend all of that within the gender-based rituals of the ecclesial age that are shadows extending from the same substance. Now, it's very obvious that God appointed the head of our bodies to be the seat of authority in his operational design of the body. The, the brain controls the body. The brain directs the body and registers the pain. But in the same way that the body responds to those commands, those choices of the brain, so Christ, as our ecclesial head, commands the operation of the ecclesial body. This observation is demonstrated in how authority or power was historically assigned to a specific person or job assignment by anointing that person on the head, as in the anointing of the high priest and the anointing of a king. In fact, Jesus was anointed on his head 
on the 13th of Nisan, um, in the year 30 of the Common Era, the day before the Passover, with an anointment that with an ointment that cost a year's wages, 30, 300 denarii, which was the income from 300 days for a day laborer. Uh, Jesus declares how it was an anointing for his death. Now that's the death that we remember at every memorial service. Now I, I realize there's more to our Messiah's death projected in the memorial service ritual but that death is specifically what we are told over and over that is being remembered by that two-stage ritual of participating in our Savior's broken body and his poured-out blood. The extension of the wine, also highlighting his resurrection, is really only secondary. Legitimate, but secondary, and not what we're particularly commanded to remember or to hope for. We are told emphatically to focus on the value of his death, for which he was anointed on his head. In such a context that the procedure actually offended some or possibly all of his disciples, wasn't just Judas. We're told in Mark's account um, that there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made. And in Matthew's account it says, but when his disciples, meaning plural, saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. This is part of a continuing problem within the enlightened community to place people over God and Christ, to presume that a presumed offense against a brother or sister who is defending God or Christ's integrity could somehow be justified. Like that presumption that the final statement of Paul in reference to the head coverings ritual could actually be correctly to interpreted to mean that, well, golly, if anyone's disposed to be contentious about this Christ-imposed ritual for head coverings, well, then, then just forget it. We have no such custom. The offense taken by the disciples is that this kind of investment in Jesus should have been diverted from the Son of God to the temporary value of the poor and the disenfranchised within the enlightened community. But the anointing of the head of our Savior for his impending death in less than two days at that time was far more important than anything else, including poor brothers and sisters in the truth who may not have anything to eat or a safe place to stay. This is a figure that should be vigorously avoided today, thinking that respecting the immediate preferences or accommodations of brothers and sisters is somehow far more significant than respecting the long-term integrity and the principles of our God and his Son. We have to balance the significance of what is eternal as opposed to what's temporary or immediate, as well as what is for God, as opposed to what is for people. Our point is that the head is where this authority or power identification is directed with the anointing procedures, just like the issue that Paul references in relation to the head covering ritual, that a sister should recognize she has power or authority over 
or above her own head, that the head covering is a recognition of this understanding when she bypasses that headship between herself and Jesus Christ through either prayer or miraculously prophesying. We see the same headship principle demonstrated in the required head covering of the high priest under the laws of the first kingdom age. Those high priests had to wear a head covering, a mitre, when they performed their tasks as high priest. That golden crown that was engraved with the statement, Holiness to Yahweh, could not be placed directly on the head of the high priest. There had to be a head covering between the head of the high priest and that golden crown. We read this in Exodus 28, uh, picking up at verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and grave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness to Yahweh. And you shall put it on, the, on a blue lace that it may be upon the mitre, which is, which is his turban, his head covering. Upon the forefront of the mitre, the head covering, it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Haran may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. This is repeated. Uh, again, that redundancy. Exodus 29, uh, next chapter, verse 6. You shall take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and guard him with the curious girdle of the ephod. And you shall put the mitre, that turban, that head covering, upon his head and put the holy crown upon the mitre. We have this uh, distinction noted a couple of more times in Leviticus 8. And he put the mitre upon his head, and also upon the mitre, that turban, that head covering, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as Yahweh commanded Moses. And Leviticus 21, it's repeated yet again. And he that is high priest among the brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. Neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. It's repeatedly stressed that the high priest had to have a head covering, and they had to place this high priest's crown on his head covering, and not directly on his own head, when he was performing the duties as high priest. So the obvious question is why? The answer is the same as why a sister has been required to cover her head when praying or speaking to God um, or miraculously prophesying or speaking for God. Just as a sister is supposed to physically demonstrate her understanding that she has a power or authority over her head when she speaks directly to or for God through Jesus Christ, so the Levitical high priest had to have a head covering to demonstrate the fact that he had a power or authority between himself and God in his service to and for Yahweh. That power was the future and forever high priest from the tribe of Judah, 
the Son of God, just as the woman is a helpmeet for man in a supportive role. So the Levitical high priest was a helpmeet for the eternal high priest in a temporary supportive role. That heavenly truth was demonstrated in the earthly shadow of the head covering that is consistent through both divine ages. The placement of authority, power, on the head was also demonstrated in how Jacob appointed Joseph's younger son to the status of firstborn with all the accompanying blessings and authority of that family station. We read this in Genesis 48, uh, verse 13. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward uh, Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward, uh, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on, upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And, of course, Joseph objected to this breach in protocol. We read in, uh, dropping down to verse 17. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. This greater blessing and greater status was appointed by the party doing the blessing, placing their right hand onto the head of the party to be blessed, again emphasizing this divine pattern of the head being identified with the assignment of authority and the appointment of blessings. This highlights one of the two qualifications for Jesus being referred to as God's firstborn son. The presumption is often that the firstborn status is assigned on the basis of simply chronology. But that was certainly not the case for Isaac, as Ishmael was born before Isaac. Not true of Jacob, as Esau was the first of the twins to be born out of Rebekah. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob, but Joseph was appointed the firstborn status. Manasseh was Joseph's first son, but Ephraim was given the status and blessing of the firstborn. However, Jesus qualifies as being God's firstborn son in two separate ways. Jesus was assigned the firstborn status despite being born almost 4,000 years after Adam was created. The firstborn assignment was in the same pattern as Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, uh, their firstborn appointment. But Jesus was also born chronologically first in the context of that second birth, that rebirth into God's immortal nature. This is one of the reasons why our Savior is defined as the head of the ecclesial body. He is the firstborn in both qualifications of appointment and chronology, and he is the head of the ecclesial body. The only power or authority above Christ is the creator of everything. 
Jesus, as high priest, as eternal high priest, will have no turban or mitre or head covering. His crown will be both ecclesiastical and political, both high priest and king. But the head is not simply identified with authority. It's also identified with responsibility for one's actions and, and one's words. No matter which sacrificial animal offering was being offered, the offering party under the laws of the kingdom of God was always the one to execute that animal sacrifice. The procedure required them to place one hand on the head of the sacrificial animal while killing their sacrificial animal with the other hand. We read this in reference to all the uh, offering categories. <clears throat> Leviticus uh, 1 in reference to the burnt offering. If his sacrifice be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Yahweh. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, and he shall kill the bullock before Yahweh. Now this is uh, repeated Leviticus 3 with the peace offering for uh, the herd. Uh, verse 6 of Leviticus 3, the peace offering from the flock. Um, and in uh, Leviticus 4, the sin offering. Young bullock uh, for sin, hands upon the head again, and again and again and again for all the sin offering categories. It made no difference what offering category was being presented to God the offering party always had to personally execute that animal. Not a job of the priest, the offering party, while their other hand was on the head of the animal. Their identification with that sacrificial animal was that physical connection with the head. This is the case with the Ecclesia's association with our Savior. He is the head of the ecclesial body. There is a headship historically expressed in Christ's role as the ultimate sacrifice, his role as the high priest and his role as the king through both anointing and crowns. That headship hierarchy that Paul presents at the beginning of his explanation of the head covering and uncovering gender-based ritual of the ecclesial age has a powerful historical foundation. Therefore, why is it these headships can be so dismissively disrespected by our enlightened community today as if there's not going to be any consequences? Well, I hope the point has been made. So therefore, Let's move on to our second question. But we're going to have to incorporate the fourth question as well, as, as they're very much related. The second question is, what is the range of application for the performance of this ritual? And the fourth question in the same context was, is it appropriate to limit the application of the head covering uh, for sisters or uncovering for brethren during prayer to the ecclesial worship environment? as was the case with the silence ritual. It has been commonly accepted in our community for at least the 50 years during which I've been baptized that sisters cover their heads during memorial service and public lectures. 
but not during every prayer in which they participate or silently offer independently. This limited application policy appears to be due to the common dismissive attitude to divine rituals in general, where an extreme focus is applied to the spiritual implications, but extremely little attention is given to maintaining the integrity of any physical performance of these rituals. This is currently evidenced by that survey that we reviewed a couple of classes ago, demonstrating an accelerating disrespect for the two gender-based rituals required by Jesus Christ during the ecclesial age. But of course, that physical performance disrespect is also evident in the memorial service ritual in relation to whether or not, well, the memorial bread should be leavened or unleavened, or even if the bread should be broken before everyone participates. Since there are no accommodating specific definitions for a limited application, for when brothers should never cover their heads when miraculously prophesying or participating in prayer, and what environments are appropriate for a sister to do just the opposite, the legitimate question should be, why is convenience or personal preference presumed to be an appropriate accommodation for the timing performance of this ritual imposed by Jesus Christ on his ecclesial body. Now, it's, it's not a point of contention that the silence ritual is presented in the context of being observed during an ecclesial environment. Sisters are certainly not required to be mute for their lives, Paul even explains that a sister should ask her husband about ecclesially addressed issues privately. But we can certainly learn about the application timing of the heavy head covering ritual when considering both of the rituals together. Sisters were certainly permitted to miraculously prophesy and to pray to God uh, through Christ. However, even that miraculously miraculous prophesying capacity had environment limitations. Paul explains this to the Corinthian Ecclesia. The Corinthian Ecclesia were, was abusing the powers of God's Holy Spirit that they had been given. They were actually competing within the environment of the Ecclesia with multiple people exhibiting their audible gifts of both languages and prophesying. They were trying to speak over each other, and apparently sisters were prophesying in the ecclesial meetings. Chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul progressively addresses this problem, explaining how the ecclesia is like a human body with many parts that are all necessary. Then he explains how love is greater than the spirit gifts, and prophesies that the spirit gifts are going to end, and even when they will end. Then in chapter 14, Paul gets very specific. He explains that the gift of being able to communicate in multiple languages for which one had never been trained was not given to exhibit this impressive, miraculous gift in the environment of the ecclesia for personal glory, but as a preaching tool. 
while prophecy was specifically given as a miraculous gift for the benefit of the ecclesial body of Christ, and not as a preaching tool. We read this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. He says, Wherefore tongues, languages, are for, are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Paul then goes on to command them to patiently wait while another brother manifests their miraculous gift. He declares that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, that they are not ecstatic, forcing their, the manifestation of power without the will or control of the prophet. But the significant issue in, the, in our current context um, is that sisters were not allowed to speak in tongues or miraculously prophesy in the ecclesial environment. We read this specifically in first script in that same chapter 14, dropping down to verse 33. As in all the ecclesias of the saints, let your women keep silence in the ecclesias, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, for they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the ecclesia. The point is that since a sister was not allowed to even prophesy or speak miraculously in tongues with the Holy Spirit power in the ecclesial environment, then it is impossible to presume Christ's head-covering requirement mandating sisters cover their heads when praying or prophesying could possibly be limited to the ecclesial environment. If that were the case, then Jesus would have to be pretty silly in demanding an application to be observed that he already completely forbidden, forbid in the first place. But it certainly is not Jesus who's wrong here. Not only is there absolutely no direct indication the head covering or uncovering ritual be limited to an ecclesial environment, there could be no possible application for a sister miraculously prophesying in an ecclesial environment in the first place, as that was absolutely forbidden. We should be seeing a pattern here. Our community has been obsessed with defining Hebrew and Greek words with concordances and lexicons, but when it comes to the head-covering ritual that inappropriately translated last phrase that contradicts the emphasis that Paul presented is completely ignored. Our community has disrespected the memorial service template that Jesus presented by claiming that, well, if God wanted us to use unleavened bread, then, then he would have absolutely commanded it on the basis of the presumption that God's word is so easy and simple. To understand. That was actually the reasoning of Brother Robert Roberts. Yet when it comes to the application of the head covering ritual, that presumption is completely ignored. 
claiming that even though there is no direct application limitation, that that has not been clearly expressed, that we're somehow supposedly free to personally limit the head covering application any way we prefer, despite that complete absence of that expected, simplistic, and definitive command. Are we recognizing the pattern in this personal convenience reasoning at the expense of respecting God's righteousness? How is this different than the objection of Jesus Christ to how the, to how the enlightened community of his generation objected to both John the Baptist and Jesus, but from entirely opposite frames of reference? In Matthew 11, uh, we read that Jesus says, For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, Well, he has a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. While one perspective is applied for the enlightened community of that generation to dismiss the message of John the Baptist, exactly the opposite perspective is used by the same brothers and sisters in the truth to dismiss the message of Jesus of Nazareth. It seems our last few generations of the enlightened community has the same problem. While we're very eager to examine Hebrew and Greek words, we seem to be very reluctant to use that research tool in the context of an incorrectly translated, obviously incorrectly translated phrase that accommodates our commonly preferred understanding. That, well, that if anyone is, is actually bothered by the ritual that Paul explains on behalf of Jesus Christ about head covering, so, then we can just ignore it. There's also the extremely odd presumption that God's testimony pattern is, well, very simple and easily understood, and that if we don't have a direct, impossible-to-ignore command in the context of ritual instructions, that we don't have to concern ourselves with the issue. But this perspective is reversed when it's applied to the head-covering ritual. There is no direct command to limit the observation of an ecclesial environment, not for the brothers with an uncovered head or the sisters with a covered head. That complete absence of any expression of a limited physical application means that brethren must never pray in any situation with a covered head. And sisters must always pray with a covered head in any situation and every time, or God's righteousness is being contradicted. And those justifications that Paul references are being denied. That God's foreheadship hierarchy must therefore be illegitimate. And that woman either was not or should not have been made from man or even after man. The issues that need to be understood is that physical rituals declare divine truths. Earth and heaven are supposed to blend in the Creator's plan. We're not free to choose one or the other for our own personal accommodations. 
Secondly, if we do not recognize God's invariable policy of communicating with intentional complexity, then we're going to cripple our capacity to personally witness that hidden glory in all the things that God says and does. We have responded to God's universal call to enlightenment. We have responded to God's call to commitment to that enlightenment, that he is right. Now we have to perform. We have to demonstrate the terms of God's rightness in all that we say and all that we do. This is the third of the four callings, the call to performance, that physical, earthly, and living demonstration of heavenly truths and principles in all that we say and all that we do. So the answer to questions two and four are the range of application for the head covering observance for sisters and the head uncovering ritual for brethren is every single time one participates in any prayer at any time in any environment. We certainly do not possess the capability to miraculously prophesy at this time of God's self-imposed silence, but we certainly do pray. And a brother must never, ever pray with a covered head. Or he is declaring that, well, there's some power and authority between him and Christ, which is not true. And a sister must always pray in every situation, no matter the environment, with a covered head. Or she is declaring there is no head between herself and Christ, which is also not true. We'll have to um, continue addressing these questions in our next class. That third question, which is, why are both prayer and prophesying included in that range of application? Why nothing less, uh, or nothing less or nothing more? Why those two? What's the commonality of these two applications of prayer and miraculously prophesying that both come under the requirement of respecting headships? Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time.
May God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.